welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, we're speaking with documentary filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen about their new film, My Name is Polly Murray. And that documentary centers on a person whose life and work are integral to our understanding of 20th century fights for civil freedoms for women, for LGBTQ people, and for African-Americans. So it's, in so many ways, it's very exciting to see a film like this because Polly Murray is a person whose story and experience really helps us to understand our own history. And it is incredible to me that so many of us, including myself before seeing this film, had no idea who Polly Murray was. Likewise, I did not, I had not heard of um, Polly Murray prior to seeing this film. And I was shocked and impressed by Polly's body of work. It really is very expansive and foundational in a lot of different ways, as viewers who will hopefully see the movie will find out. And at the very end, you know, Julie and Betsy talk about recognition for Polly Murray, and hopefully that's what we accomplish. One thing that we should point out is that throughout the interview that follows, Medea and I sometimes will switch between using she and they pronouns for Polly, oftentimes just defaulting to Polly's name. And the reason for that, which we discussed with the filmmakers, is that Polly's experience of what we might call gender nonconformity in a general sense is something that today we could define as transgender or non-binary, but those terms, the way that we use them today, are not quite available for Polly in Polly's time. So that's why there is a kind of sometimes back and forth in terms of the pronouns that we use for Polly. So just as a heads up to listeners. Thank you, Eric. Of course. And without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Let's do it. We're thrilled to have documentary filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen on the line with us today. Betsy and Julie are perhaps best known for RGB, their Academy Award-nominated documentary about late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That documentary provided the initial impetus for the film they're here to speak to us about today, which is My Name is Polly Murray. The film, which is currently in limited theatrical release and will be available to stream on Amazon starting October 1st, centers on the life of Polly Murray an activist and fierce warrior against injustice whose story has been confined to the margins of history until now. A pioneering attorney, activist, priest, and dedicated memoirist, Murray shaped landmark litigation and public consciousness around issues of race and gender equity, including Supreme Court cases such as Brown v. Board of Education and the case to extend the 14th Amendment to provide equal protection under the law to all Americans, regardless of sex. As an African-American raised in the segregated South and as a person wrestling with a gender identity that did not fit neatly into the male-female binary, Polly understood intrinsically what it meant to be an outsider and the urgency of the fight for equality for all Americans. The documentary, told largely in Polly's own words and with interviews from scholars, Polly's law students and friends, recounts a difficult and fascinating life that anticipates and offers inspiration for many of the challenges we face in the present. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Betsy and Julie. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you, Eric. Happy to be here. So, Betsy and Julie, let's start with how you got to Polly Murray and how you were first introduced to her. Well, Eric alluded to the fact that when we were making RBG, toward the end of the process, we learned that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as a litigator, a brief, the first gender discrimination brief before the Supreme Court, put Polly's name on the cover, giving Polly credit for coming up with the idea that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was the key to winning gender equality. So that was interesting. We took note of it. And then after the documentary, did a little Googling, a little research, and just discovered that Polly Murray was such an extraordinary person who had such a profound impact on so many areas of 20th century life and our current world that we just thought, you know, why don't we know about this person? And, you know, maybe, maybe we could do a documentary. Yeah, you know, Polly had such an impact on two huge areas of law, equal rights for women, equal rights for African-Americans, as you mentioned, Eric, in your intro, such a comprehensive intro that I was like, okay, we're hard. Our job is done here. You know, you did such a great job summarizing our film. And yes, Polly, as a student at Howard Law School, had developed the idea in a third year paper that the Plessy versus Ferguson separate but equal rule should be completely rethought and overturned. And the goal of those fighting for civil rights shouldn't be to just make things equal, but should be to get rid of the whole idea of separate because separation is inherently leads to inequality and injustice. An idea that's actually quite fundamental to our laws now, but was completely radical when Polly was proposing it in the early 1940s and in fact led to laughter amidst classmates and the faculty at Howard. Polly made some major strides in activism, fighting segregation on both transportation and in restaurants, also in the early 1940s, before the more publicized and organized civil rights struggles some years afterwards. Polly had huge academic achievements, becoming a tenured professor at Brandeis. Polly became the first woman-identified Black Episcopal priest. I mean, Polly had poetry published, an extremely innovative family memoir published in the late 1950s that Polly viewed as a precursor to Alex Haley's roots. I mean, the number of accomplishments and the scope of intellectual foresight is so huge that it was, you know, a little stunning to us that this was someone that we didn't know about and hadn't learned about in school. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I, and I think that would be the experience of most audiences watching the film is just that, I mean, you even have one of the scholars that kind of frequently appears in the documentary says something to this effect that it's like, you can't really tell the history of 20th century America without telling Polly Murray's history and is equally agog that none of her students know who this person is. Um, Yes. You know, I want to just jump in there just to say that's Patricia Bell Scott, who was our consultant on the film. And certainly we relied heavily on the work of scholars, primarily, you know, a lot of African-American academics who have Mm -hmm. done work in the past decades to really explore Polly's legacy, but as you say, has not gotten out into the wider public. In my 
life somewhat apart from this radio show. I work on a lot of documentary podcasts. And one of the things that I was just loving as I watched the film is the obviously deep and rich archive that Polly left behind. I mean, that's oftentimes, especially characters that have been at the margins of history or haven't kind of been centered in, you know, I guess we'd say mainstream histories, we don't have much usually, you know, especially when you're talking about people that, and we'll get into this a bit more later, that are kind of LGBTQ or specifically like people that have made major interventions, but who are not white or male, tend to not have these deep archives. But with Polly, you had quite a rich archive. Their voice really like you hear it throughout and it's incredible to see it come to life. So can you talk a little bit about the archive and how you approach the materials that you found as you were working up the documentary? Yeah. You know, I don't think we would have made this film if Polly hadn't left the archive behind. And that was a very intentional Polly Murray move, typical in a sense, because of how much Mm -hmm. foresight it showed. Like this Mm -hmm. is someone not getting the recognition they deserve in life who's thinking like, yeah, but like my ideas are really profound and are going to, the time is going to come from them. And maybe if people aren't interested in hearing what I have to say fully right now, they will be later. So Polly went to quite a bit of trouble to amass this archive, not only saving, you know, notes that you're writing on college papers, some carbon copies of personal letters that you're writing and all these diaries, but also when a journalist or oral historian academic showed up at Polly's home to record an interview, Polly would bring out a tape recorder and double record and just save, you know, just save tapes and made sure that Karen Rouse Ross, Polly's grandniece and sort of closest Mm -hmm. living relative, you know, set up Karen as the executress of the estate and said, please take all of my stuff and bring it to the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, who I've already been in touch with, an amazing women's history collection at Radcliffe. And there it was waiting for many scholars who have written incredible biographies, including Patricia Bell Scott. And then ultimately the audio tapes, you know, many of them hadn't really been listened to and, you know, to have the opportunity to hear them and some video that we found really made the whole thing quite a pleasure. One thing that maybe we can discuss is Eric had used the pronoun they for Polly. I've been using the pronoun she, and that is one of the ways in which they or she were incredibly groundbreaking in terms of the kinds of ideas that they were putting out in the world. So maybe we can just talk about that a little bit. What was her gender identity and how do we talk about Polly Murray? This is material that is in the archive that Polly left behind letters and diary entries that show that Polly had a feeling from the time of childhood that while people thought Polly was a girl or woman, Polly had the feeling that Polly was a man. And in the 1940s was writing to doctors and saying, can you help me with this? I've heard that in Europe, they're doing experiments with testosterone to help men. Maybe that could help me. So this was a private struggle that Polly left behind evidence of. We don't know how many other people at the time were struggling with this and really have this feeling. You can only imagine how lonely it must have been because it's not like there was a vibrant 
LGBTQ trans community for Polly to connect with. It was really something that Polly tried to get help with from doctors and was really rebuffed. So the issue of pronouns is an interesting one for us in the film and the one that we address because, you know, the people who knew Polly, Polly's colleagues, friends, and relatives knew Polly as a woman and used she, her pronouns. And yet the revelation that has come out that Polly really had this feeling of being a man has been really a kind of beacon for the trans community. And many people do refer to Polly with they, them pronouns, in some cases, even he. We have a discussion in the film about this and what's appropriate. And I think that as filmmakers, we came down sort of agreeing with trans lawyer activist Chase Strangio that using as much as possible Polly's actual name is a good solution because we know that Polly, who was actually named Anna Pauline, had picked the name Polly, liked the name Polly. So we do try to refer to Polly as Polly and avoid pronouns, but sometimes we also use they. Certainly in the film, because there's no narration, it's people talking. And so we give people the choice of referring to Polly as they prefer. In a related vein, Betsy and Julie, I'm wondering, there's two major relationships with women that Polly has, both of which I understand has been quite formative. The first one is a romance where they were with a woman and... Polly wanted to be recognized as a male in a quote-unquote, as she described it, normal relationship, meaning a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman. The female partner could not bring herself to recognize Polly as male, and this was the end of their relationship. And actually, as you describe in the film, kind of led to Polly having a period of real mental duress. The second relationship is rosier, one with a woman named, the name is Renee, but I think Rini is the name that, how it's pronounced. And, you know, Polly describes her to others as a friend, you know, kind of using what to us in the present seems like a bit of an outmoded way of describing a gay or lesbian partner, or a partner who's, in other words, not heterosexual. So I'm trying to piece these things together because it seems like Polly was in many ways quite circumspect about sharing intimate details about their life. And I, you know, and this is around the time that Rini dies, Polly becomes, as you said earlier, the first Episcopalian priest, you know, ordained in the church who was African-American. Ruth Bader Ginsburg also makes mention of Polly's deep religious convictions, something that Ginsburg says she can't totally understand. So how do you think that her deep, Christian faith, certainly not an evangelical faith. I mean, Episcopalians are pretty open. You know, I grew up Catholic. We called them diet Catholics. (laughs) So that kind of, how was Polly putting those things together? And for Polly, was faith apparently ever in conflict with gender and or sexuality? Yeah, I think from what we could gather from Polly's writings, that Polly saw no conflict between a deep faith in Episcopalian Christian beliefs and Polly's gender identity and loving women. And I think, you know, Polly always went kind of straight to Christian teachings about oneness and reconciliation and tolerance Mm -hmm. and 
you know, the ideas that are very much can be found and that are grasped and loved by progressive religious people. When you think about it, the conflict between the church and the LGBTQ community is really a conflict between organized religion and religious hierarchies more than it is the deep faith. And I think that's how Pauli seemed to see it. As you point out, the Episcopalian church is also relatively progressive, which does not mean that they were like welcoming gay clergy in the 1970s because they certainly were not, although I do believe they do now. But Mm -hmm. Pauli, when in talking about faith was always, Pauli was often pushing the Episcopalian church to be more accepting of women and feminist principles. Mm-hmm. I mean, when Pauli went to the seminary, the Episcopal church was not ordaining women. Pauli, having a leap of faith, as in so many areas, was like, yeah, but by the time I get through this, maybe they will. And in fact, that was true. I mean, Pauli <laughs> was most likely either trans or non-binary by today's terms, but certainly by the world was being perceived as a woman. So being a woman would have gotten in the way of ordination, but Polly just pushed forth and in fact was ordained. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Betsy West and Julie Cohen, directors of the new documentary, My Name is Polly Murray. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Maggie Nelson on the line with us today. Her new book is called On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. And Maggie is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Maggie, what book are you going to recommend? I want to recommend a book that's not quite out yet, but it's about to be out in November. And it's a book called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. And it's by David Graeber and David Wengrow. And David Graeber, as a anarchist anthropologist who passed away unexpectedly while I was writing on freedom and his work had been really important to me, especially his earlier book, Possibilities. And this is a posthumously published book that he did with David Wengro, who is an archaeologist. And it's a fascinating, hugely ambitious, nearly a thousand page attempt to recast the story of primitive and beyond civilizations in terms of, you know, it's just like, it's like literally like a whole, as it says, a new history of humanity and challenging ideas about the development of agriculture, the origins of the state, democracy and inequality. And it's dedicated to an emancipatory project that means a lot to me. And so I recommend it to you all. Wow, that does sound incredibly ambitious. Can you tell us the title of the book again and the two authors? Yes, it's The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity by David Graeber and David Wengrow. Thank you so much, Maggie. My pleasure. We've been speaking with Maggie Nelson. Her new book is called On Freedom. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Betsy West and Julie Cohen, directors of the documentary, My Name is Pauli Murray. Let's talk about her really astonishing progressiveness in terms of legal ideas and legal conceptions. Can you tell us a little bit about the paper? I mean, this is incredible, but a thesis paper that she wrote as a law student that then sort of in a way, laid the conceptual foundation for turning the segregated laws 
at the time in 1943, as, as Julie said, Plessy v. Ferguson was the law of the yep. land that was set up the idea of separate but equal. And it was there. It was Polly's idea. Look, by its very definition, separate can't be equal. It's psychologically damaging. It's just the whole construct is wrong. And at that time, many of the NAACP lawyers were really trying to argue within the concept of separate but equal to really push for more more equalness. Let's make the schools equal. Let's get better. And it was Pauli's idea that no, Plessy B. Ferguson is completely wrong and it will be overturned. Pauli predicted in 25 years and it had a bet with Pauli's professor that it would be 25 years. It turned out to be 10 years that Thurgood Marshall was arguing successfully against Plessy v. Ferguson, and and it was overturned in the mid-1950s. And then Polly later finds out from that very same professor with whom Polly had the bet that Polly's paper, you know, ridiculed at the time at uh, Howard University, had been dusted off and used uh, as part of the argument for Brown v. Board of Education. So that was the first thing. And then I think the second Put yourself back and, and remember in the 1960s, the battle for women's equality, women had won suffrage in, uh, you know, in 1920. And subsequently, there was an equal rights amendment that was introduced every single year in Congress and was never voted on. It just would die in committee or whatever, because there were real battles over the Equal Rights Amendment, as there are right now. But, you know, one of the battles was, oh, women need to be protected. There were labor women who felt that it would endanger women if they didn't have protections against working long hours. So it was Polly in the mid-1960s who said, okay, Equal Rights Amendment, this is going to be really tough to get, but we have a 14th Amendment. And the the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment could be used not only to win more equality for African Americans, but to, to win equality of the genders. And Pauli was one of the first people to suggest this really radical idea, which RBG picked up on. I mean, both these ideas were just out of the box legal conceptions that were then adopted. One of the things that strikes me as so fascinating about Polly's life is that Polly lives through and personally experiences virtually every major platform for pursuing equal rights that one can imagine. Polly is the one that runs afoul of established precedent when they apply to go to university that was at the time only, I believe it was uh, University of North Carolina that was only available to men. So Polly fights for their way to get in there. Polly also fights as an African-American early on, as you were saying, to get access to free and equal access to public transportation. I mean, there are so many ways in which every major battle that we've fought for the expansion of equal rights and protections in the United States to women, to LGBTQ people, to African-Americans, was fought and personally lived by Polly Murray. So one of the questions that I have for you, which I kept thinking about as I was watching your film, is what does it mean to restore Polly Murray to our histories of 
20th century America, including the histories of the African-American civil rights struggle, the women's rights struggle, and the LGBTQ rights struggle. It feels to us like it's a restoration that's just long overdue. I mean, in, a, in large part, there's been a, not just for Polly, but there's been a problem in the recognition of the civil rights struggle of not recognizing the key role that women played in that. Comparably, there's been a problem in the way we look at the women's rights movement, not properly acknowledging and not giving the right recognition to the African-American and Latina women who took, who took part in, in, in that struggle. So kind of everywhere that Polly went, you know, different slices of identity were being used against them or Polly to not to not be able to progress as was, uh, you know, kind of 100 percent and beyond deserved. So it does feel like it's kind of part of this larger conversation about how we're teaching history. Um, unfortunately, the conversation has flipped in this kind of alarming way that actually we need to be teaching less about the struggles for uh, civil rights and, and women's rights and human rights. But, you know, Paulie's such a good example of, of stories that we lose by not recognizing the full scope of people that have been involved in moving our society forward. Absolutely. And the other thing that I find so inspiring about Polly is that, I, you know, I'm a very nervous person. I So I'm not as brave as someone like Polly is, just constitutionally. I might have the thoughts that Polly has, but I'm not, I don't have the experience and the uh, firebrand to use the, the label most frequently applied to Polly, kind of persona that they had. Can you talk a little bit about Polly's relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt when Eleanor was the first lady of the United States. Yeah, I mean, Eric, you're absolutely right. Polly was kind of surprisingly fearless, starting with uh, the act of riding the rails during the Depression, dressed up like a boy. Uh, you know, that was kind of a dangerous thing to do, but something that Polly kind of just found thrilling <laughs> despite <Yeah>. <laughs> the circumstances of being in the middle of the depression and not being able to get a job. So it was in the 19, I guess, 1940, the late thirties that Polly was rejected from the university of North Carolina mm -hmm. for race, racial, we, you know, we don't accept African-Americans. And shortly thereafter, FDR comes <laughs> through town and speaks at uh, UNC and talls at a great, liberal, progressive place and how much, uh, you know, improvement there's been in the South. And, and Pauli is just outraged uh, by this characterization of an institution that will not accept Pauli because of race and fires off a letter to FDR, an angry letter that not only raises Polly's personal uh, disappointment and about this, but also says, yeah, and why haven't you spoken up about all of the lynchings, uh, you know, the burning of our people mm -hmm. uh, and signed on to an anti-lynching uh, legislation. So it's a, it's a hot letter <laughs> from, from Polly Murray, as Patricia Pell Scott says, and also sends a copy to Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, just to have the wherewithal to do that, thinking, oh, maybe Eleanor is a little more progressive here. And sure <laughs> enough, 
gets an answer back from Eleanor Roosevelt, which leads to a relationship, which continues until Roosevelt dies in, you know, the, the early 1960s. And yet an example of Polly's fearlessness is that it was a true friendship and Polly didn't hold back. You know, whenever FDR did something that Polly disapproved of, Polly would let Eleanor know, and it didn't seem to hurt the friendship. And that, you know, is a, a, a kind of forthrightness and, as you say, courage and bravery to even, you know, there you are, you've become friends with the first lady, and yet you're willing to risk the fact that she'll be pissed off at you and stop inviting you to coffee or you know, up to the country house to have a lunch because of your principles. And Polly really stuck to to Polly's very heartfelt principles. To pick up on what you're saying, Betsy, that's what I think the real inspiration of Polly Murray is, is that Polly fought for every ounce of access they were able to get, but then never rested on any kind of laurels once they got them. There was no kind of kowtowing to power or, oh, I'm just so appreciative to be in the room. I mean, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg had told you guys that, you know, yes, she could be really fierce. She could be really strident, you know? And certainly this is coming from a woman like Ruth Bader Ginsburg is no shrinking violet, you know? So it's, she's a real kind of, Polly Murray is a real icon, an example of someone who fights for power and uses it for those who don't have it, which I just, I walked away from the film thinking, you know, I wish, would that we could all be that way. Yeah, um, I think I think that's uh, absolutely true. And there are so many instances and it is a particularly unusual characteristic, even for very successful people. I mean, as RBG herself often would suppress things to or in order to keep some civility, like she was not someone who was always going to be speaking truth to power in every social circumstance. It's pretty unusual if you you know, getting to be this, you know, this close to the first lady and speaking up. And that was not the only relationship like that in, in Polly's life. You know, Lloyd Garrison, who was the person who had right. gotten Polly the job at Paul Weiss, is actually someone that Polly continued to sort of speak up to, like even, you know, holding on to a job at a, you know, well paying job at a law firm, which would be an incredible situation for either an African-American or a woman in the 1950s, Mm -hmm. never mind someone with both those identities and who's not presenting in the most uh, corporate, you know, dress and, you know, so, you know, you know, getting getting that job was miraculous. And yet Polly was someone who stood up for principles and, in fact, at, at a certain point just decided um, to take the opportunity to move to Ghana to help start a law school there. So to leave the cushy job, right. you know, where where Polly's getting paid so much money after about three years and just say, you know, I'm I'm on to this, you know, really, again, spurred by principle, spurred by the fact that there was yet another lynching in 1959 that just so outraged Polly and and disappointed Polly about America that that they said, well, I'm going to go to Africa and look at these emerging, you know, new countries and see if I can't help there and help start a law school. I mean, it's kind of an extraordinary decision. Having watched the film, you get a sense that 
Polly almost had, you know, many different versions of her life, that there was the version of students studying English, there was the uh, law student, there was this uh, corporate lawyer, there was um, uh, this person who went to Ghana to go try the legal system there and to help build out a legal system there, came back, taught, one of the interesting things, uh, and then eventually became a priest and left a tenure job, which she fought for. One of the interesting things about it is that a thing that makes her complicated is that at a certain point, she, they were also somewhat behind the times. There's an interesting part where in the 60s, their students talk about, you know, it felt a little out of step for us. And so, and you don't hide from that complication. Can you talk about that a little bit? Can you talk about this person who had such a radical history? Truly, I mean, truly in the the most like simplest term of what a radical is, maybe finds themselves at a certain point and not at the same step as other people. Right. Well, here, 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 Polly ended up as an academic in the late 60s, early 70s, the height of the Black Power movement. And um, among other things, wasn't crazy about the activist students, the black activist students using the term black versus Negro, the fight in Pauli's day had been to capitalize the N in Negro so that, and Pauli felt strongly that that there was a real dignity to that. So was irritated with lowercase black and butted heads with students over that and over a building takeover at Brandeis which was a very common tactic tactic in all kinds of activist movements of students of that day. But it was just, Polly was, a, it didn't really fit in with uh, Polly's uh, style. You know, certainly a generational differences always emerge. And perhaps part of that battle was a little bit of a proxy for Polly's irritation that these younger students weren't recognizing the contributions that Polly had made many decades before and were kind of thinking they were inventing activism when Polly had been fighting for, um, you know, had been fighting for integration many decades before. And now these students were more in favor of separatism, which is very different than segregation, but just didn't or just just sort of rubbed Polly uh, the wrong way. Polly's t- two students who are in our film, though, by the way, I mean, part of the be- beautiful thing in our mind of that part of the story arc is that they came to love and admire Polly very deeply. And as one of them said to, said to us, like Polly was walking history and anyone that any one of our classmates who wasn't seeing that, like basically just wasn't getting it. This is a fascinating film. I highly encourage all of our listeners to go watch it, both to learn just about a great life, but also to understand a new dimension of American history. And we've been speaking with Documentary filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen. The name of their new film is My Name is Polly Murray. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. 
Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.